In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. A bunch of months ago, I introduced you to an author from the college where Charlotte Wade went, Abilene Christian, Miles Wurntz. He wrote a book called From Isolation to Community. And if you remember the argument that we surfaced at that time, it is this. The modern church, especially the Western church, has done a fantastic job, meaning tragic, of cultivating two impulses in most people that are in a room like this. One, to suggest to you that your spiritual pilgrimage is primarily intellectual, that you are all, to borrow another guy's phrase, brains on a stick, and as long as I can give you enough content, you'll be fine. That makes you an individual. The other impulse that the church unwittingly cultivates in you is just what they're going to do in Houston and Philadelphia tonight. Create a crowd. And they're all going to be there for the same reason, and they're all going to be wearing the same colors, and they're all going to shout the same stuff, but they don't know each other from Adam, and they don't care. And I wonder, is this a crowd or is it a community? Every church is is tempted with those, cultivating those impulses of making you a bunch of individuals or gathering you together and making you into a crowd, but neither of those make you into a community. What will? What builds a community, a true community? It's a word that's so elastic and, and so defined in any number of ways. What is a community? What, def- what builds it? I hope for over the last several weeks, one thing would be obvious, the fruit of the Spirit. Those in whom the fruit of the Spirit dwells, because the Spirit dwells in them by faith in who Jesus is, if those things become true of us and mark us and are at the center of us, that will build a community among us, no doubt. Where we are in that pattern, in that litany of what the fruit of the Spirit is, it's all one thing, it's not several things, it's one thing with many elements. I'm here to hearken back to the beginning of our service of what its opposite was. Here's J.K. Simmons again in Whiplash. There he is. There's a picture of harshness. This morning, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit that is gentleness. And I'm here to clarify for you at the outset what gentleness is not. It's not harshness but it's also not fearful of heart. And we need to explore that. And we're going to do so not by having to search the scriptures and find every instance of the word gentleness. We only have to go about four verses past where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit as gentleness and talk about a very specific application that Miles Wernz is going to hearken to us and that what you're going to see, so to speak, in living color We're going to talk about gentleness under two heads from those verses. What desperately needs gentleness, and then what gentleness desperately needs. What desperately needs gentleness, and what gentleness desperately needs. All we got to do is start two verses later in chapter 5 of Galatians 5, and go till 6-5. So, if you will, I wonder if you could stand. We'll start in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing... He deceives himself, 
but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will, not, will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You, you may have a seat. As we are wont to do whenever we read from a text that drops us into the end, nearly the end of a letter like we hear, we better catch ourselves up. Let's talk about the context. What's the context? Paul's writing to a bunch of churches in what is now Turkey. It's called Asia Minor then. He has an encounter with Jesus on, his, on the road to Damascus to persecute the church. He is converted to Christ. Years later, he is commissioned to go unto the Gentiles to speak of the resurrection, to speak of the grace of Jesus. He goes into those regions of Asia Minor. The gospel starts to find traction. Churches are planted. Things are going well. He leaves them, uh, appoints elders in every city, and then he catches wind that something else has happened in those churches. Other voices have come in the mix. What you'll read in the New Testament is the word Judaizers, those who have a deep background in Mosaic law, but who also believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They're hearing from these folks what they've heard from Paul. Jesus is risen. He's come to you. He's died for you. And there is forgiveness in him. But at the same time they're saying those words, they're also saying this. For you to be in his favor and for you to stay in his favor, it is all on you to comply entirely with what we find in the law of Moses. And Paul is saying, what have you done? Where did you go wrong? And the whole of the letter is him trying to recover for them this truth. He is risen. And so take him on his terms. And what were his terms? In Jesus, God has come to you with grace gentle and lowly and humble of heart and by his work you are forgiven full stop it is not contingent love follows from that belief salvation and justification before the lord is all the work of the one who came with grace and with truth that's the gospel that's the context of the letter let's talk about the context of the human heart I don't think I need to remind you. What is true of them is what is true of you is what is true of me. We all have a struggle. And that struggle has, it's an awful two-front war. Have you learned nothing? Never fight a two-front war, right? The world as it is and the weakness that occupies every person, that is our struggle. And it's everybody's struggle. It is my struggle. It is my struggle this week. And in that struggle, the world at is is and the weakness within as I am, you know what is inevitable? What is inevitable is sin. Not just ah, bad person, bad you. No, folly, short-sightedness, error, malice, estrangement. All of those things you can put under this grand umbrella of what sin is. And here's the question. What do we do? This thing that's inevitable, what do we respond? Do we just sort of like, huh, well, the air is human. Short answer, no. Given sin's inevitability, given sin's life in every one of us in this room, whether you believe in God or not, how do we respond? And here's where we get to our first question. What most desperately needs gentleness 
That's what he says there in verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There is gobs in that two verses. Let's, let's just take a few things about it. One, who is he addressing? It's not the leadership of the churches in Galatia. It's everybody. It's the whole family. Brethren, that's you. That's me. Indistinguishable. He doesn't section it out. What he's saying, he's saying to everybody. His job for us, these words are for the whole body. It's everybody's gig. Secondly, not only is he addressing everybody, he's saying, you who are spiritual. Let's be clear on what he means there. He's not saying if you sin, you're no longer spiritual. To say you who are spiritual, he's saying you in whom the spirit dwells. And to even say that language, for those of you that are not with us at all ever, or you, you don't even heard that word before, it, it kind of sounds like, oh, that just means sort of a niceness. No. It's talking about a reality that becomes true for you as soon as the Spirit has moved in you in such a way that you now see Jesus as beautiful. And now the love of Christ controls you because you believe that he's died for all, and now our rest of our lives is to live for him, to please him. The Spirit dwells in you. This whole series that we've talked about when it comes to what is the Holy Spirit, what does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit, you and I have this challenge, this tension all the time. We ask ourselves, what does it mean that the Spirit, we owe our greatest change to the work of the Spirit in us versus what is our responsibility? I mean, you can come so far over here and say, I can do nothing. There's just no part of it. I just got to kind of wait. Oh, um, right. And then there's everything like, it's on you. It is on you to fix this. Neither of those are true. When he says you who are spiritual, he's there to help reconcile those two things that feel like a paradox. Yes, you owe, and everybody in this room owes their deepest change to a work of the Spirit. But oftentimes, the Spirit works in and through those in whom he dwells. So the reason he's addressing everybody who has the Spirit in them is because God works in them to do what he wants through them for the sake of others who need him. The paradox is most simply put in another letter that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, got it. There's my mandate. That's what I got to do. Okay, but then he finishes his thought. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's a both and. What desperately needs gentleness are people in whom the Spirit dwells who are there to act as mediators of God's grace and gentleness and loneliness and all sorts of other things, and his holiness too. That's what's at work, and he does that for us. But what's the goal? What's the goal of gentleness? He says it. What is a sin? You and I, we think of it as like, oops, uh, infraction, yellow card, red card, whatever it might be. Penalty, no. Every violation of the law of Jesus is, first of all, a violation of his love. It is a refusal to believe that he is for you more than anybody else is for you. And when we sin, we are, as Isaiah spoke, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. We are like the sheep that bust through the fence and put ourselves out out into the pasture, and we think ourselves, I'm free! 
and now you are also endangered. What does it mean to restore someone? It is means to bring them back to a place of vitality and provision and protection and goodness and mercy. It is out to restore them to full vitality and fellowship both with the family of God and with God himself. That's what restoring is. And it has to be done in a spirit of gentleness. So what is it? What is gentleness? The word there in its original language borrows itself, or it's, it's deeply related from what you first hear in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, it's translated, for they shall inherit the earth. And that's a great word. And meekness is often in the New Testament paired with the word gentleness. So conceptually, they're very related. There's overlap. But what is meek? Unfortunately, you and I, when you hear the word meek, I know what you're thinking. You think it means timid. You think it means, oh, I don't, I, I can't. That's not meekness. It's not gentleness. Meekness in that sense that Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount means this. It means a strength that is restrained, that is well-governed, that is aware of what it can do, and it does its best not to let it break out no matter how righteous the intonation or the motivation might be in the exercise of certain power or authority or words. Gentleness is not afraid, but it exercises strength with restraint. When Peter uses this word in his letter, and he's talking to people that are in the midst of being persecuted for their faith, he says, have a ready defense for the hope is in you whenever somebody might ask you, but to do so with gentleness and respect. Why would he need to say that? Because if you're getting it handed to you, I know what your impulse is. It's my impulse to hand it back, to retaliate, to recriminate. You don't know what you're doing. I will hand it back to you. And he's saying, you can try that. Let me suggest to you a more potent form of persuasion. Gentleness, respect, because that wins a hearing like nothing else will. Where does Peter get that? Like, where did Peter come up with that? Is he afraid of what people might do when they start talking about it? No. I'll tell you where he gets it. First of all, from seeing Jesus embody it himself. Who does Jesus embody gentleness before? You can bring your own list. Middle school retreat just talked at length about Zacchaeus. Middle schoolers, as, long as, as if you didn't know already, what is that a demonstration of in Jesus to Zacchaeus? That's gentleness. He knows what Zacchaeus had done. He knows what the law says Zacchaeus deserves. And what does Jesus say? Hey, man, I'm coming over to your house for dinner. Whoa! He does that with Zacchaeus. He does that with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler had many possessions. He says, sell it all. Give it to the poor. Follow me. And the like, rich young ruler says, thanks, no. Hard pass. Walks away. And it says, Jesus says, it looked at him and loved him. Not... You're a fool. He does it with Zacchaeus. He does it with the rich young ruler. He does it with the prostitute that's anointing his feet. He does it with the woman caught in adultery. That's how Peter learned it. But Peter most learned it, not just seeing it in Jesus, but receiving it from Jesus. The night Jesus is under arrest and he's being betrayed, what does he say to Peter? He says, you're about to be sifted. You're going to be tempted. And when you turn back, strengthen your brother's. He knows what Peter's going to do. It's going to be up against it. And he's going to say, I don't even know this guy. 
I don't know him at all. Jesus knows he's going to do that beforehand. And he says to Peter, when you turn back, when you come to your senses, when you finally get it, strengthen your brethren with what you've been through. In other words, I love you. I am so for you. And you're going to forget me, and you're going to think I'm not important, and you're going to think that there's something else more important than everything I am for you. None of that is true, and I love you anyway. That's gentleness. And he's trying, and that, and that will play out later in John chapter 20. He restores Peter to his side. It's all about gentleness. Okay, now, I say that, you hear that, you may even nod your head at that, but <laughs> were there not times where Jesus was like, if that's gentleness, I don't think so. He was flipping tables at one point, right? He was angry at some ways in which people just wouldn't get it. So wait a minute. Yes, it means you've been looking carefully. Good for you. Way to observe the text properly. There were times that he was fierce. And usually at the people who are most habitually in sin, the people who are so blind and hardened to their own will, that sometimes he's got, you can't go like, honey, you're getting it wrong. It's like, do you see yourself? So therein lies the question. All right. Uh, how do I know whether I'm being improperly harsh? How do I know when I can be properly gentle? That's the second question. If what desperately needs gentleness is restoring a brother and sister who are acknowledging their sin to restore them to love, to faith, to vitality, to fellowship, if that's necessary, then what does gentleness desperately need? That's the other half of my point here. And I will not be coy with you. I will cut to the chase. What does gentleness most desperately need? This. A proper sense of the self, lowercase s, that's informed by a proper sense of the seat, capital S. A humble sense, a sober sense of the self, lowercase s, informed by the son's sense of the seat. I'm not trying to be clever with alliteration there. Capital S. Let's break that phrase down into its two constituent parts. A proper sense of the self. What affords you the capacity to be able to speak into anybody's life and restore them to a place of vitality and faith and fellowship? It comes, first of all, from a proper understanding of yourself. you got to see yourself. And that's why he says in the next verse there, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. First order of business Let's understand you. Let's understand me. And it was not for no reason that we read in our Old, New Testament reading, Jesus' very words there about that famous line in chapter 7, uh, judge not lest ye be judged, right? Um, specks, logs, eyes, all of that. What's he getting at there? There is a capacity in each one of us that if we are not sensible to it, we will see all sorts of issues in one another and be blind to our own bigger problem. If we are not aware of that, we have no business speaking into the lives of somebody else. And usually people start around, stop around chapter 7 verse 2 and say, see, don't judge me. It's the thing these days. It's the word. It's a meme. Don't judge me. And then you got to finish the sentence. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you're able to see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not about 
don't discern, don't ever discriminate, don't ever uh, think about whether something is up or wrong or in need of remediation and whatever. Just first of all, first of all, see your own capacity to have that which you have a problem with in somebody else to actually exist within you. And until you go there, you are not seeing yourself properly. You need a sober sense of yourself. And that should sound really familiar. There's a, there's a famous line from an, um, a, a, an anonymous work of the, of the church fathers who said this, uh, he fell yesterday, uh, I may fall today. Like, you ought to write that on your hand. <laughs> and the next time you're ready to kind of maybe mention something, you go, he fell yesterday, I may fall today. Or what a thousand years later, uh, the author Thomas Kempis said, he said this, you know, old Tommy. If you should see someone commit a sin or some grievous wrong, do not think of yourself as someone better, for you know not how long you will remain in your good state. We're all frail. Think of yourself as one who is more frail than others. In other words, in the moment when you see somebody who has committed a sin, it may be tempting to go, I cannot believe you are capable of that. And then when you pause for just a minute, you give it five minutes, you go, um, I can believe that you would do that because I know I'm capable of it too. It's not that you go silent. It's that you first get still. You have to have a proper sense of yourself, of who you are, of what you're capable of doing, of your capacity for doing the very same thing you're seeing in another. A proper sense of the self and a proper sense of what it means to be a member of his church. He says there in verse 3, bear one another's burdens. I'm going back to what I said on the first point. It's everybody's gig. And part of being able to restore somebody to a place of vitality, that's everybody's, it's everybody's opportunity. It's everybody's privilege. This is part of it. We are bearing burdens of those who are in grief today. And I think Paul has an even wider scope of concern when he talks about bearing one another's burdens. But he certainly also includes the idea when you are involved in another person's life when they are caught into transgression, it, it is kind of your responsibility. Or at least it's not your reflexive response to go, ah, like the center fielder who's always like, yours! <laughs> no. You bear one another's burdens. That's what it means to be a member of his church. We're in this together. Restoration is part of what it means to be a member. Several of you have gone through the class. Several of you are thinking about whether or not you want to stand to become members of this body. And there are vows that you consider. And if you can take them with a good conscience, we welcome you into membership in that way. But maybe what was an off-menu item in thinking about that that you should probably consider is that when it comes to becoming a member, it's not about coming and sit at a lecture every week mostly. It is about being a member, like members. It's what it means to be a member of the body. When we are in this together, we have a proper sense of ourself. But at the same time, having a humble view of ourself and having a clear view of what it means to be a member, that really kind of rests upon something even more profound. And that's the other part of my little phrase here. You have to have a proper sense of the self that's informed by a proper sense of the seat, capital S. Listen to it again in verses 4 and 5. Let each one test his own work, 
And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Um, test, work, boast, load, all that weight. It's, it's a lot. Let me, let me see if I can simplify that for you. There is a tendency in all of us, if you've ever been online, to do this thing called comparison. I know, shocking. What? You see them, their curated self. They chose to portray themselves in a particular way. You look at you and you go, oh, man, glad to be me. (laughs) Or I feel hollow that I'm nowhere close to being what they are. And what you and I have a tendency to do online, we have a tendency to do with even thinking about like each other, even as a member of a church family. There are some people that you walked into this room today and thought, whew, glad I'm not them. <laughs> they got some problems. That family got issues. And then there are others you go, why am I even in a room? Why am I even letting me in here? And there's this thing that we do when we think about the Lord and we kind of we begin to rate each other. And Paul's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? What he's talking about there in words that perhaps are a little veiled to us, he's talking about judgment. The judgment of God. The judgment seat. In which everything is disclosed. Everything that was once hidden is now out in the open. It's no longer hidden. And in this room, you go, boy, did I pick the wrong day to come here. Why, why, why are we talking about that? I thought the name of the church was Grace. Oh, it is. But that's why we read the other part in the New Testament reading. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? For we all appear before the judgment seat. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's in there. He said that. The same guy that talks about grace in Galatians talks about the judgment seat in 2 Corinthians. And that's not the only time he talks about it. What do we do with that? Here's what you do with that. There is a judgment. Everything that's hidden will be disclosed. But for those who have run to him for mercy and find refuge in him, their sins, though seen, are not counted against. I think that's the gospel. I've heard that's good news. That's where we're going. That's how we see it. And yes, sobering but it's also meant to be an encouragement. He is good. He did all of that for us, for you, for me, that we might receive it and find refuge in it because that is the very foundation. If, apart from that, I don't think you can have a sober sense of yourself. I don't think you have a clear sense of your membership, what it means to be a member, and therefore you certainly will never have a properly informed, properly intoned sense of a spirit of gentleness in order to restore someone who's caught in a transgression. That's what gentleness most desperately needs, a sense of the self based upon a sense of the seat. What does all that look like? What are we supposed to do with all that? I told you there's a very practical application here. And again, I'm going to hearken back to something that Miles Wernst said about sin. And he said this, sin is never privatized. 
any more than the spiritual growth or virtue of the Christian is a singular work, sin and its effects never remain with us. When I do not confess to another person, I am perpetuating the isolation of sin for religious reasons. I am withdrawing from others and hiding from them the sin that is affecting them, claiming that I need only confess to God. Whoa. What? I've said it before. This is not new if you were here at that sermon where we talked about miles before. He says what revolutionizes a community is the ability to get honest with somebody you know whom you can trust, whom you can hear that and go, here's where I have had a problem this week. Yes, confess to the Lord, by all means, but to think that there is no value in doing so with another, really? Who told you that? Confession will help. Great, but here's the application. Listen to what else he says. If we trust the Christ who called a body together, then we must trust those of the church to hear our confession and speak words of Christ back to us. Confession becomes the breakthrough to our life together. Through confession, we encounter one another with Christ mediating our relationship. So there's a question. What are those words of Christ that Christ speaks back to us? How do we get there? Craig and I would like to share something with you about the thoughts and words about what it means to hear a confession properly. Because I will say to you, when it comes to hearing a confession, there are a lot of ways in which you might hear it wrongly. Consider several examples. Shocked. You did what? Judgmental. I can't believe you even did this. You know you reap what you sow, right? Man, what a harvest. Speechless. Um, yeah, uh... Do you need some more coffee? Instructional. You know, I just listened to a podcast on this very thing, and they gave three steps of what to do. <clears throat> Step one, acceptance. Step two, eliminate carbs. Step three... Oh, wait a minute, different podcast. <laughs> Minimizing. Hey, forget about it. He did. Or, with all due respect, the shrink. You know, I'm not really a therapist, although I've been to plenty. <laughs> um, so, first thing we need to do is relax, okay? You just need to clear your mind, you need to lie down, and just we need to go back to the beginning, okay? At birth. Uh, Google.com backslash confessional. How to help a friend who has messed up big time. <laughs> no, no. Uh, hey, wait, this might work. And there's a video. <laughs> Timid. Look, I, I know this may sound crazy, but uh, could I text you? because I'm really not a people person. Uh, or we could Zoom, <laughs> and I'll mute the video and maybe the audio too. <laughs> Self-righteous. I don't really know what to say, because I just 
would never do anything like this. I mean, do you even read your Bible? You, you know what it says? Or what about the life coach approach? Yeah, that's super tough, okay? But uh, there's no sense crying over spilt milk, okay? We just need to step forward, start today. Five verses to memorize. Ready? Go. And then there's the buck passer. Look, I, I appreciate you trusting me, but I realize now, even in this, that this isn't my gift. Um, have you talked to an elder? And then there's the gospel. Yeah, that's really hard. Uh, and you know, the way forward is not going to be easy. But he's, uh, we can step towards him, okay, even in this. He, he's for us. He gave his life to make this new. Bring the chair back. Bring the chair back. You're sitting there, I would be sitting next to you if I had time. We will all have opportunity to confess our sin. What this sermon, I think, is out to point us to and to urge us on and help us to mature into is the capacity to sit in this seat, to look at you when you bring a confession and to be able to respond in a way that Craig didn't just give you a script, but he did give you a heart in which you... You do not simply pass off and out of your own like, unsettledness and unpleasantness, like, I don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want to make you feel bad, to represent both the holiness of God and the grace of God in a single sitting. And it's not to suggest that by confessing your sin that everything is like, everything's perfect now. It's a way forward. It will always be a way forward. Having a spirit of gentleness is being able to remind people of Jesus in that, yes, he's holy and he's good, and he's for you, and he's not safe, but he is good. And somehow we bring together the gentleness and loneliness of Jesus, while at the same time reckoning with what he has done and what was necessary for us. And therefore we can't see any time we wander into sin as a trifling matter. And yet that sin is swallowed up by his death, and it begins there. And how it would revolutionize a community that discovered what it meant to say in those moments what you just saw summarized in simplest terms. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Let's pray. Whatever may be on our hearts, whatever ways in which we have failed at this, we ask your mercy now to see the face of Jesus even as he saw and looked into the eyes of Peter, knowing what Peter was about to do and loving him anyway, would you help us to take an appropriate concern and regard for what the nature of sin is, how it estranges us and endangers us? But would you also help us to see and be enamored and awed even more by a look of love back at us, even in our denials of his goodness for us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.